we're looking at a very familiar story, the story of Noah and the flood, a significant story. Five different books of the Bible mention Noah uh, by name. Five chapters of Genesis or a fifth of Genesis, I mean, sorry, a tenth of Genesis uh, is dedicated to the, the account of Noah and his family. And, and so it has a significant place in scripture. It's the first mention of the word covenant is in the story of Noah. Um, but it is, uh, it's a story that, I mean, we uh, hopefully, as we dive in, can pull some truths out, that it's not just an ancient story of something God did a long time ago, but a story that still speaks into our lives in our world today. Now, I will say that there's a lot of questions that emerge out of the account of Noah and this catastrophic worldwide flood. But this morning, we're not gonna get into the science of it, uh, what, it, what is literal, what's descriptive, what's poetic. Um, but most importantly, we're going to look at what does, what does this account reveal about the heart and the character of God? And what does it reveal about who we are as humanity to God? And, and so as you're reading it, and I say this every week, I know is that uh, way more important than anything that I have to say is what God wants to speak to you through his word. So my strong encouragement is dive into the, the account of Noah this week. Uh, let God ask that question. Okay, God, what are you saying? What are you speaking into my life? What do you want me to do with this? Now, as you're reading it, to note that the Bible was not written as a science textbook. That's important to note. And yet at the same time, what amazes me, what causes me to just to fall in love with the Bible over and over again, and we need to be people saturated in the scripture, but is that the more that we learn about biology, archaeology, psychology, neurology, astronomy, all the me's or G's, the more and more that the ancient truths and the authority of Scripture gets confirmed over and over and over again. That we look into the farthest reaches of heaven or into the tiniest specks of matter and what it echoes over and over again is the genius and the presence of a creator God who has made himself known to us through his Scripture. And it is powerful. And so uh, if you're interested in diving more into some of the, like the nuance and the details, uh, one recommendation I would make if you have not had the chance, uh, a few years ago, my, my family, we had the opportunity, our family's in Kentucky, and uh, we had the chance to go, there's a, a in Kentucky, just north of Louisville, um, it's called the Ark Museum. And uh, if you've not had a chance to go, I strongly recommend it, especially if you have children or uh, teenagers, um, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. They, they literally re, they've built uh, a life-size replica of the ark based on the description given in the text. And then they've really dove into uh, the, the, the scriptures and, uh, and the theology of it. Um, and so it's a, a phenomenal experience. And to be honest, like, even as a pastor, we're making this trip, we're going to the art museum, and I was mentally preparing myself uh, to be appreciative at something I just assumed was going to be super cheesy. You know, I was, like, I was imagining like flannel graphs and old school slideshows, you know? And uh, it blew my mind. I mean, it is incredible. It gave, it gave me a, such a deeper appreciation for the Bible and for this account. So I can't say enough about it. Again, lots of questions that emerge um, that we're not going to talk about today. So... 
But we'll start right here in chapter six, verse one. Uh, Let me say, I'm sorry, before I read, this is the lens through which we're gonna read this text today. It's it's, uh, Romans 15, four. And Paul writes, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so we're going to look at these 40 days of tumultuous chaos, a season of upheaval and how it leads to a time of renewal, a season of waiting that ultimately leads to a time of deliverance and freedom. And then the last thing I'll say is this about the story as a whole is as popular as Noah and the flood and the account is, I mean, if you've spent any time in church or even if you haven't gone to church, you probably know this story. This isn't a cute little kid's tale about some animals on a boat. I mean, if you read the story of the flood, there is nothing PG about it. It's a story of death and devastation and destruction. And yet at the same time, the most prevailing theme throughout this text, even in the midst of all the chaos and the pain, is the faithfulness of God and his provision of deliverance and salvation, even in the midst of mankind's sin. And so let's start here, verse one. Genesis six. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in or contend with mankind forever for he is flesh mortal. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So even just in the first few sentences, like I said, there's a lot of questions that come up. And we can talk about that over a cup of coffee at some other time. The big thing I want to pull out of that first part is, is, is simply this. And, uh, in verse one, you have that mankind is beginning to multiply. That word multiply, if you want to circle it, is uh, it's a carryover from Genesis chapter one. It's actually the fulfillment of God's command to Adam and Eve to multiply, to fill the earth. The problem is God's design was that they would fill the earth in, uh, in connection with God and fill it with life. But instead, they are multiplying death from their sinful and broken relationship with God. And we see that in verse two in that phrase, they took as their wives any they chose. The two words there, they took what they chose. God's design was that we would walk, even from Genesis 2, God sets mankind, Adam and Eve, in a garden, and he places in front of them the tree of life that they could eat from as much as they wanted. God's design for us was that we would have life to the fullest, And yet next to the tree of life was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from that tree, God said, do not eat. And if you eat it, you'll die. Why? Because God wanted us to walk with him. 
to trust him, to learn to recognize his voice and to respond to his word, to to walk with him in the cool of the day, to discover the goodness and the potential of this amazing world that he had made. And what he's saying is, you don't need a tree for the knowledge of good and evil, you have me. But the moment you turn your back on me, God is saying, the creator, the author of life, what do you get? Death. And we see Adam and Eve eating from that tree, the knowledge of good and evil, striving after the very thing that God had already promised them, to be made in the image of God, the one that they were created to to embody and display his goodness and his glory to the world and turning their back on God. They, They were cut off from relationship with him, which divided their relationship with one another. And we see the entrance of sin and with sin comes death and shame and guilt and hiding and fear and lying and blame and accusation and all of the brokenness of the world that we still live in. And we see that sin move from the individual of Adam and Eve to their family, Cain and Abel, that literally splits the family around violence as Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. And then we continue to see down as Cain and Abel have their own, or sorry, Abel's gone, but Cain begins to have his family, the other sons of Adam. And we see sin move from the individual to the family, to the community, till it permeates all of society. And so we read here, just six chapters in, that the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, in the Hebrew, there's not, there's not a way to put more emphasis on the pervasiveness of sin and deception. Every thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made mankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart, to his core. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. We see very quickly in Genesis chapter six that God takes sin seriously, that it breaks his heart. This was not the world that he designed. It's not the life that he intended. In a world that was meant to flourish, that was packed with potential for goodness and blessing that God looked at and said, this is very good, that his presence rested on. Instead, all he sees is violence and self-deception and self-destruction that has permeated everything. And really, as we look at this, you know, God's judgment on, on mankind and, the, and the, the corruption of their hearts and the corruption of their world And really all God is doing is giving them what they ask for. Their life and their choices is defined, it says, by self-destruction and violence. And what does God give? In a few days, what generations have already led them into. He's he's fast-forwarding the path that they're on with the flood. He's not bringing something new. He's simply bringing to completion what they'd already begun. 
And if we stop the story right there, it would actually echo many of the ancient accounts uh, of man's under, trying to understand the gods. You have these stories of worldwide floods throughout all kinds of different cultures. You have stories of the gods that interact with mankind and, and, and how they move from pleasure to displeasure, from, from, uh, from joy to wrath. And, and you could see in this story, if we stop right here, how you have God creating the world and, and, uh, and his connection with mankind and all of a sudden turning his back on them and it would fit with the gods as people have imagined God to be for generations and across many cultures but the account doesn't stop there verse 8 but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord that in the midst of a world defined by death and corruption and sin there was one. And that one was enough for God to bring deliverance and salvation. The one that would respond. The one that recognized his voice. What do we know about Noah? It continues on that Noah, uh, that Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. It's the second time that word walked is used in the Bible. The first time it's used is God stepping into the garden in the aftermath of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against him. As God walked in the cool of the day, he asked that faithful question, Adam, where are you? We realized we were naked and so we hid. And yet here, generations later, is one man and his family that continues to walk with God the way that God had designed from the very beginning. And for that one, God would provide a way. That yes, God takes sin seriously, but he is passionate about life. The account of the flood is not primarily about death, it's actually about life. It begins with life and it ends with life. Even at the end of the whole story, what is God's like, primary concern to, to Noah after everything is said and done is that you hold sacred the lifeblood of every human being from this point forward. In other words, God isn't primarily defined by death. God is defined by life. And even in the midst of our sin and rebellion and corruption, God will always provide a way of deliverance. As the story progresses, sin increases and the distance grows between God and his people. And yet God shows up with a way through. Those, that, that description of Noah, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That word righteous uh, in the, the context is, uh, it, it speaks to, to Noah's relationship with the rest of humanity. It's a term that he, he it's, it is defined by, he was a just and merciful man before uh, other people. He tr the way he treated the people around him. The word blameless, which literally means wholehearted or not divided, speaks to his posture before God. And then it ends with that summary that he walked with God, that his life was oriented towards pleasing God. His face was turned to God. 
And what's amazing is into those, in those two words, righteous and blameless, it actually in two words sums up what Jesus said is the two most important commands. To love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Righteous and blameless to walk with God. And so in that, Noah finds favor and God provides a way. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. In other words, they were living in the reality of a worldwide flood before the flood ever showed up. Everything was dead, violent, and corrupted. In the same way, C.S. Lewis writes that though we may be concerned about going to hell, the reality is is that we're living in hell long before we ever get there. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth is a powerful phrase. In other words, the good creation God made is gonna revolt against itself. And even as I read this text, I just keep thinking about the world that we live in and the corruption and uh, the, the chaos and the violence the depravity of our culture that feels so overwhelming. And in Noah's day, it had to feel so overwhelming. And yet in the middle of that, he remained faithful and recognized God's voice when he spoke. To me, that gives me hope. And God spoke and told Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. It's acacia wood. Make rooms in the ark and covered inside and out with pitch. And then he gives descriptions of what it's to look like and a roof on it and a door on its side and three levels. And then verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything on the earth shall die. But I will, but... And again, it's those buts in the scripture that are so important. But I will establish my covenant with you. It's the first mention of the word covenant in the Bible. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, and your sons' wives with you. The reason I keep saying that about first mention, I know I've taught on this before, but just in case, uh, it's the principle of the first mention is that in Scripture where a key word is first mentioned, it gives a context and understanding for, I mean, a context for understanding how that word gets used the rest of Scripture. And so even like covenant, we could think about it as like intimacy or connection with God, which yes, it is that. But the first context of covenant is God's deliverance to salvation. That his faithfulness in the, mit, in the midst of mankind's corruption. And that will echo through Abraham and on into uh, David and uh, Moses all the way up to Jesus. And then God continues to give instructions to bring his family into the ark, <clears throat> to bring two of every kind of animal to keep them alive. He, he wants to preserve life. They shall be male and female. 
according to their kinds. <clears throat> Take food with you, that God provides provision for the journey. And then verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Right there, we get the essence of what it means to walk with God, to hear from God and do what he says. And consistently throughout this entire account, you get God said and Noah did. God said and Noah did. God said and Noah did. And I just wonder if we have that, if we live with that same sense of expectation of a God who speaks, who continues to speak words of warning and guidance, of deliverance and salvation, of a God who gives instruction and reveals a plan and a purpose, a God who still contends with mankind still wrestles with, pursues. I mean, we sing that song at the beginning, I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered. I sought the Lord and he heard and he answered, which is a beautiful song and true. But even more powerfully is not that we sought the Lord and God answered. Even more powerfully is that God sought us. And what we see in the account of the flood is a God who contends with, wrestles for, on behalf of, strives after humanity, even in their brokenness. And will bring life even to just the one. So yes, God takes sin seriously. God is passionate about life and he is faithful in providing a way of deliverance, but that we must take God's way for salvation. This is a theme throughout all the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Adam sowing fig leaves together for himself and God completely ignoring them and instead sacrificing an animal to provide skin. It goes back to Cain who brings an offering that gets rejected and Abel that brings an offering that is uh, accepted and received. It goes back to the Bab Tower of Babel, mankind building a tower to reach to the heavens that God causes to crash down. Our attempts to make ourselves right before God will always fall short. And yet God will always provide a way for us, to, a way of salvation for us. And our role is to respond to God's way. And so when Jesus says that I am the way and the truth and the life, that no one comes to the Father except me, he is speaking an old ancient truth that God has been proclaiming all the way from back in the beginning. I will provide a way. And then Jesus says, I am the way. And the only way to salvation is to take God up on the way that he provides. For Noah, it was stepping inside the ark. And we see even in just a few verses, this is that God shuts Noah in. It is the hand of God that preserves Noah's life, not Noah's craftsmanship. Noah simply obeyed and did what God provided. And so for, God, for Noah, the way of deliverance was an ark, but that ark was always intended to point to the ultimate way of deliverance. That wooden ark would one day become a wooden cross. And God would provide a way of salvation through the perfect blood of Jesus Christ. And we get... Uh, in seven days, God says, I'll send rain for 40 days and 40 nights. So we get our 40 for the 40 stories. 
the season of upheaval. And verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The world exploded on itself from underneath and the windows of the heaven were opened. This torrential rain that came from above. This destructive, violent act. And I just wonder, have you found yourself in a season of upheaval where it feels like the world under your feet is collapsing, where it feels like the world is falling down on your head, where it feels like, quite frankly, that you're drowning? It could be a phone call, a doctor's appointment, a meeting with your boss, and all of a sudden, your entire world gets ripped apart out from under you. And what do we do in those seasons of upheaval? What can we learn from Noah? So the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And on that very same day, Noah and his sons and their wives entered the ark them, they and every beast according to his kind. Verse 15, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh that there was breath of life. And those that entered male and female went in as God had commanded and the Lord shut him in. And the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. In a season of upheaval, we need a place of refuge. First and foremost, in the upheaval of our sin and the recognition and the realization of our own brokenness and self-destructive and selfish tendencies that we find that refuge in the forgiveness of Christ. That Jesus made a way for our deliverance from ourselves. But also in life, when it feels like the world is upside down, when it feels like the ground under us is caving in, that Jesus becomes our safe place. He becomes our refuge. That his presence is our peace. We, fought, we, are able, we hide in him. It's like the disciples on the boat in the midst of a storm as Jesus slept on a cushion in the front. And the wind and the waves crashed against the boat and they thought for sure they were going to drown. That Jesus is the one that holds us together when it feels like everything is falling apart. That's the invitation of life with Christ. Not just simply waiting for heaven one day when we die, as beautiful and powerful as that is, but the presence of a living, speaking acting God in our midst right now in our times of chaos and crises. And what's amazing is this description as it continues in chapter seven is it uses this word over and over again that the water increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth and the waters prevailed and increased greatly. In other words, it looks for a while during that season of chaos and upheaval like the water is winning and the water prevailed and the water prevailed and yet above that water, this little boat floated 
And I just wonder, I just think about as we like live into this story, how many times we've looked at the world around us and it felt like it's winning, that the, the chaos is going to destroy us in the end. And even the Gospel of John begins with this statement that the light came into the world and the darkness has not, cannot, will not, is the word there, overcome it. The water prevailed above the mountains. In other words, the chaos rose over everything. Until you get to chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah and all that was with him. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. It's an act of recreation. It echoes the original act of creation from Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1.1. The spirit of God hovered over the chaos of the waters. And so God begins out of that season of upheaval, a time of renewal and restoration. And in the same way, the hope of Christ that we hold on to is that even in your time of pain and tragedy and trauma and fear, that there is a God who is present with you in the middle of it, but there's a God who is working for your deliverance. And so Noah waits. He watches and he seeks God and in those seasons of waiting, like you may be looking at your past and saying, yes, that was my upheaval season. That was my flood season. Some of you are like, I'm in the middle of it right now. And I don't, it, I look out on the horizon and I don't see when this is going to end. Honestly, that's how I feel about American politics. It's like, I don't see when this is going to end. Put my head in a hole, go float on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Because I, I am present with you in the midst of all of this. I am present. And in that season of waiting, and this is so important that you get this, in the season of waiting, we need God's revelation. What do we see in Noah here as he's waiting on that boat? As he keeps watching, and eventually he opens a window, and he sees the waters beginning to subside. He eventually takes off the roof. He sees that there's now dry ground appearing. And even as he's seeing dry ground appearing, he doesn't act on what he sees or perceives. He waits for the word of God. And it's not until the phrase, and the Lord said, Noah go out, that Noah went out. This is days after the ark had come to rest. From Noah's perspective, the flood was over, and yet he waited for God's word. I think so many times, and as we try to hold on or survive our seasons of chaos and, and tumult, that, uh, that we, we, we try to control things, or we try to make things happen, and we, we try to figure out like how we're going to move forward instead of waiting for the word that God gives. In our seasons of waiting, we need revelation. Are we willing to lean into God and act at his word? In verse 18, or uh, sorry, verse 16, the God, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. And then verse 18, so Noah went out. 
And what does that season of upheaval and that time of waiting lead Noah to? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The waiting ultimately leads to worship. There's something that Noah now carries because of his faithfulness and watching and waiting and listening to God. And God enters in with Noah and restates the command he'd already given to Adam. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's the renewal of the original covenant. And it's important that we understand that God didn't save Noah simply for Noah's sake. As important and good as that was. God didn't even save Noah for his family's sake. God saved Noah for the sake of the world. And why does that matter? Because I think a lot of times we can think about our salvation, God's way of deliverance in Jesus, God's presence and peace in the midst of our crises as being God's salvation for me, my individual salvation. And as important and good as that is, it's not all that God has for you. He didn't just save you for yourself. In fact, he didn't just save you so that your family could be blessed and have a good life with him, as important and good as that is. God saves you and God shows up for you consistently in your pain and your crisis because he wants to put something in you for you to carry out to the world. God saved Noah for the sake of his covenant blessing for the rest of the world. God didn't simply save you for yourself. So in our seasons of upheaval, we need a place of refuge. In our seasons of waiting, we need revelation. And then at the end of the story, that famous moment when God set points, says the sign of this covenant that I made between me and you and every living creature that I will never again destroy the world by a flood is that I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The covenant sign that God would no longer pour his wrath on the deserving sin of mankind is a bow that he places in heaven. That every time it rains, we would look up at the sky and remember the faithfulness of God. A rainbow. That even in the greatest darkness, or through the greatest darkness, the light still continues to shine. The spectrum of colors that's not limited by what is there, but only limited by what we can see. But it's not just the rainbows like a bow you put on a package or a cute little bow you put in your daughter's hair. That word bow is a warrior's weapon. And what God is saying in this covenant sign of deliverance is that he would lay aside his divine weapon of wrath never to pick it up again and in fact 
If you notice, when God places the bow in the sky as a sign of his faithfulness, it says that one day again, when I release my wrath against the sin of mankind, I point that arrow at myself, and I will take that wrath in heaven so that you don't have to experience that wrath here on earth. The rainbow was always a promise that one day God's wrath would again be poured out, but he would pour it out against himself, not against humanity that deserves it. And so for you, as we process this story, what are the seasons of upheaval in your life? Where are the places of pain? And that first and foremost, can you receive the invitation of Jesus to step into your life as Lord and Savior, to take the consequence and the weight of our sin on himself, that you might receive forgiveness and eternal life, and that the Spirit of God might be your peace and your refuge in times of crisis and pain. And if you're, in your season, if you're in a season of waiting, what is the word that God wants to give you to hold on to? So I just invite you just to close your eyes as we continue in worship. And you just ask the question, Lord, will you call to mind the seasons of upheaval and chaos? the places of pain, whether that was caused by my own decisions or the things that happened around me. And then if you're willing, just ask God, God, where were you in the midst of that? How did you hover with me over the waters? And if we're willing, just ask God, God, is there any lie that I began to believe during that time about you, about myself, that you've abandoned me, that I'm alone, that it's up to me to figure it out, that I'm not loved or wanted? Is there any lie? that I began to believe. And then just be honest with God. Just acknowledge, God, I be, during that time, I began to believe this. And then ask him, Lord, what is true? What do you want me to know? because it's his truth that will set us free. Even now, have you received Jesus into your life? Surrender to him as the true Lord and King.
receive the forgiveness, the washing away of your sin. And if you're in that season of waiting, to just ask God, God, what do you want me to know? What are you speaking into my life in this season? When it feels like my circumstances are not changing, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to do? And so as we move into worship, I invite you to just come and pray. Our prayer team will come forward to pray about anything going on, to minister to you in whatever way. If you need healing, if you are in a place of needing to receive God's forgiveness in Christ, to release something, to let something go. If you're needing provision or breakthrough, let somebody pray over you. We'll take communion together. In the front, we have the bread and the wine representing that ultimate act of God's deliverance in Jesus who took that bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. And took that cup and said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That the arrow of God's wrath pierced Jesus' side, that he might become the ark that provides our deliverance and salvation. So let's worship God together.